as we are in Isaiah chapter 13 today. Actually, we're in chapter 13. Hopefully, you brought your Bibles with you. If, um, if you haven't, or at least a, a tablet or a phone, we'll be looking at larger portions of Scripture. My grandson looks back at me. So have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, we're going to be looking at greater portions of Scripture week uh, for the next several weeks anyway. So keep the, keep the word open. Um, as you remember from the beginning, we said that the book of Isaiah, the, the whole 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah is broken into three major sections. And chapters 1 through 39 is the, is the first major section in the book of Isaiah. And within chapters 1 through 39, there are three subsections. And chapters 1 through chapters 12, which we finished last week, is the end of that first subsection. And chapter 13, which we'll be looking at today, begins the second uh, part or the second subsection of the major section, 1 through 39. And it speaks about the judgment of the nations. Uh, the judgments of nations, chapters 13 through 23, and then chapters 24 through 27, the end of the subsection, speaks about the sovereign triumph and reign of God over all the nations. So that's kind of where we're headed. And if you remember, we said in chapter 1 through 12, we saw that God was, through his prophet, calling his people, uh, and calling them out, really, of their covenant-breaking sin, uh, their haughty pride, their fear of man rather than the fear of God. They had abusive leaders their failure to trust the Lord and seeking help and provision and protection from other people. Their oppression, uh, uh, they oppressed the poor and the fatherless. And therefore God, we saw, sent his heavy hand of discipline upon his people and chastised them, chastisement upon his people by the Assyrian nation. But in the midst of God's hand of discipline was his hand of mercy, his hand of comfort and salvation. That's why we were calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah. It's all about Jesus, our sin, our brokenness, his salvation, his mercy and his comfort in Christ. In chapters 1 through 12, Jesus was seen as the one who cleanses us from sin, makes us white as snow. He's the branch of the Lord, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, who washes away the filth of God's people. He is the Emmanuel, God with us. He's the light of the world, the child born whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Peace, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, the promised King, the eternal Son of David who will reign on the throne and over his throne forever. We've seen all this in the book. He's the shoot from the stump of Jesse that spouts and, and, and bears fruit. The promised King who comes in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who will reign and rule with righteousness and peace, and his messianic kingdom is characterized by complete shalom. All creation put back in peace. Last week, chapter 12, we learned that Jesus is the reason that God's people give God thanks and praise. God, because of Christ, his atoning work on the cross, God's anger was turned away, and now we are the people of comfort. Isaiah showed us that Jesus is our salvation. He's the one that we will trust. And in the strength he gives us, we will sing and we will shout. We'll call upon his name and draw from the waters from the well of salvation. That was in chapter 12. What a wonderful start. Verses, chapters 1 through 12. Now, chapter 13. Turn our attention to Babylon. To Babylon, Assyria. The two major players in that day, and then we'll look over the 
few weeks uh, coming of the other nations. So you, hopefully you have a, a sheet. We do have a, a, it's online, I know, a little outline for you. The day of the Lord, the destruction of Babylon, the decision to choose Israel, the dissension of the proud, and the determination of the Lord. Five points uh, this morning as we go through these two chapters. Somebody will be around to collect your lunch menu and your order in a few minutes. No, we'll, we'll wrap it up, although it is beautiful out here. Um, so let number one on your outline is the day of the Lord, verses 1 through 16. The day of the Lord, verses 1 through 16, chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a hill, raise the signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of the tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens. And the Lord and the weapons of his indignation destroy the whole land. Thank you. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, hands will be feeble. Every heart, every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look angst at one who, at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Again, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolate and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride and the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind more uh, than gold of Ophar. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his anger, fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with no, none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished or violated. May God add a blessing to the, blessing of the reading of his word this morning. How would you like to preach this one? One of the things we've seen over and over, we see it again here, is that the God of Israel, the God of creation, is Lord over all nations. Their destiny is in his hands and his hands alone. He's the sovereign actor on the stage of human history, not them, no matter what they may think. And that means that to have trust in other things, other nations, instead of the king of kings, is not only foolish, but will ultimately end in the end. Ruin, destruction. Yet for those who trust God, there'll be joy. We'll see in chapter 35 when we get there. There'll be joy. They'll see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And these oracles, the oracle, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, these announcements, these burdens are not... No, they are an announcement of disaster upon these nations, but they're also, I want you to see this, an announcement to Israel for their salvation. 
for their salvation. These words were given to the prophet of Israel for the people of Israel first, if even at all given to the other nations. The destruction of God's enemies means salvation for God's people. And this description of the nation's destructions is so that they may and we may see the beauty, the wonder, the power, the might, the majesty of our God. And that we would turn to him in obedience, beholding his wonder, beholding his grace, beholding his covenantal promises and follow and trust him. This opening section against Babylon uh, we see is not against Assyria. And some of you may think, well, why not Assyria? They are the world power. We talked about that. Well, Babylon was growing in strength and they were actually one of the main um, cities uh, that 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 was growing. They had uh, this commerce. Uh, they were they were they were growing in culture and trade. And now God uses them, even though they will come to power later on, to portray and to, to show forth this overthrowing of, of nations due to their pride. Babylon is a symbol of self-exaltation. Babylon is a symbol of pride dating back to Genesis 11 when we read about them in the Tower of Babel. And as we get into chapter 14, we'll see clearly how Babylon represents all human pride, that those who, who, who contend with God to try to make themselves rulers of the world. The oracle begins with this call to arms, a, a raising of, a, of a signal. And this army is called together in the first few verses to enter into the gates of the nobles, the haughty, the elites. And the purpose of this army was to cast down the prideful. James tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. You want to be in opposition of God? Be prideful. You want grace? Be humble. But notice this army is not just any army. It's called and assembled by God himself. Verse 3. That God's warriors consecrated to him to carry out the judgments and to exalt. Look what it says. In his being lifted up by my proudly exalting ones. Those who exalt the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. The nations gather for battles. And, and the mountains, that which used to keep them safe. Natural barriers they depended upon for security come to no help at this point with this battle. This is not just a local squirmish. This is an army that's called from all over the earth, as far as the ends of the earth, the place where the earth and the sky meet at the horizon, verse 5. And who is coming? The Lord and the vessels of his wrath, the king, the master, the sovereign one of history. How foolish then it would be to trust in other nations. Rather than the Lord of hosts, God will bring them down. And you could see this ultimate final day of the Lord sort of in the backdrop as, as Isaiah is talking about what's going to happen to Babylon. But verse 6 brings that backdrop to the forefront. Wait, excuse me, wail, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty, it will come. The day of the Lord, the final day when God will humble all the proud and he alone will be exalted. He alone will be exalted. The final day of vengeance upon all the nations. And this is important. Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord. Isaiah talks about on that day. And sometimes it can mean different things. It could talk about the, the, the near future when he talks about Judah and Israel. Uh, on that day, things, the, the, the discipline, the judgment will come. 
And he'll talk about even the further down the road when nations will be judged. But all of that is a prelude to the final day, the day of the Lord, when God pours out his wrath, not just simply on one or two nations, but over all of mankind. And, and Isaiah in his prophecy, you have to see all that going on. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is portrayed as the type of the great enemy of God. and God will defeat his enemies and establish his holy kingdom. He says, wail, howl, terror, really is the word, is appropriate for the day of the Lord. And human strength will become helpless. Creation itself will be, tremble, verse 7. Nothing man can do, right? All hands and every heart will melt. The invasion, this day of the Lord, this, this conquest is a cause for hopeless terror. In the destruction, look at verse 9, of sinners. And then Isaiah in verse 10 takes his prophecy to the heavens. The sun, verse 10, the moon, the stars will be darkened. Sound familiar? Jesus used that terminology for his second coming, Matthew 24. This first fall of Babylon is a mere dress rehearsal of the coming of the king of kings in his second coming. Pagans worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, not only to show forth God's glory and majesty and power, but it's to say to those pagan worshipers, your idolatry will be judged. Verse 11, we see that sin is directly identified as the cause. We see the sin that is directly identified as the cause of God's wrath. Look at verse 11. It's pride, pomp, and arrogance, the word, uh, the word means. The, the human attempt to, 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 to live independently and to seek only their own glory and not God's glory. And the aim of God's holy anger is focused on the extermination of evil. Places where people live all over the earth. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Verse 12. I will make people more rare than fine gold. Mankind than the gold of fur, the place of a fur. Dreadful day coming upon the earth to face, to face the wrath of God. Righteous indignation. We talked about God's wrath. He is holy. He is good. He opposes all sin. And this section ends in verses 14 through 16 with images of, of scattered people being hunted like animals, frightened animals, turning on each other. No one will be left alive. Man, woman, child will die. And over Babylon, the judgment pours out, but it will pour out over all the earth. In that day of wrath, in that final judgment, who can stand? Now, seeing this passage, understanding its, its context, and, and just the language that Isaiah used may be a little uncomfortable to talk about, to think through. We love verses like John 3.16, great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, great verse. John 3.36, though, ends that passage of that verse in that context, in that chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Word of God tells us that God does not, God does not, take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And his heart's desire is for everyone to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. The one who bore the wrath, who suffered the judgment, who paid the price for our sin, the one who can 
escape, that we can escape the wrath and judgment of God. That's the gospel. And like Babylon and the rest of the world, you and me here today, pride will keep us under the wrath of God rather than humility running to the Savior who died and rose, who paid the penalty, absorbed the punishment we deserve. God will be true to himself. He has to deal with sin. He is perfect, righteous, and holy. And either we will pay the debt ourselves in eternity away from God under the wrath, or we will run to our substitute. His name is Jesus. I hope you hear this morning running to your substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we read about the destruction of Babylon, verses 17 through 22. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb and their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in. Or for all generations, no Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. And their ostriches or owls will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. Hyenas or foxes will cry in its towers. And jackals in the pleasant places, palaces. It's time. It's time. It's close at hand. And his days will not be prolonged. God uses the Medes as his vehicle. Medes are the people that uh, were part of what now is central Iran. And the final day of the Lord, the day of Babylon, destruction will come by the same principle. The day of the Lord, the day of, of, of Babylon's destruction, the Lord will see to the final destruction. He's made a promise. Motier commentary says, it is typical of the Old Testament to see coming to see coming calamity against the backdrop of ultimate calamity. That's that backdrop thing we talked about. Just as every king or every next king was eyed with the keen hope that he might be the promised king, future of what's going on now, so envisions turmoil, raise the question whether it might be the last battle. In other words, is this the final one? So God's going to use the Medes to defeat the Babylonians as God used and directed the Assyrians to discipline his children. Back in chapter 10, we saw that. In each case, God was directing these armies to finish and to accomplish and to finish his plan. God controls history, even today. And he will bring about all the historical events in every era to the final conclusion of his holy purposes and his will. That should bring you comfort this morning. We get so caught up, and me too, that we don't see God is sovereign. We can rest in that. Nothing is but catching him by surprise. And this army that he's using, the Median army, is described as soldiers who are determined to win. God knows that. They're not going to be vulnerable to bribery, silver or gold, verse 17. They will ferociously destroy their enemies without mercy on the womb, verse 18. And no one, not infants nor young children, will live. 
They'll know, they're, they're known for their archery. Look what it says. Their archery will, will be to the destruction of young men. No one is left. In many ways, verse 19, look at verse 19 with me. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. It's the heart of the message. Babylon, the glory, huh? their glory, the glory of their kingdom, the splendor and pomp, the arrogance and pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrows them, when God overthrew them. It's the kind of arrogance and pride that God says he hates. And just as God overthrown Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll overthrow Babylon. All the destruction was done from the Lord's hand. Nomads, no place to run, no place to hide, no place to wander. Verses 21 through 22, these animals are mentioned. And one commentator makes a good point. He says these, these animals that are mentioned are, are the ones that howl at night, that come out at night, that, that eat carcasses. There's this sense of, of ominous destruction. This, this, this city that was, that was known for its majesty and its power now has night dwellers. How they have fallen. And the destruction is not going to come later. It's coming soon, 22b. Its time is close at hand and its days will, no, will not be prolonged. So a couple of takeaways, as I said before. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God's power, his omnipotent power and his sovereignty rules all the nations. Number two, God has a plan and purpose for every nation, including America. I'm not prophesying. I'm saying what the scripture is clearly teaching. What that plan is, I don't know. But he has a plan, and God will crush, in the end, all those who oppose him. In Genesis chapter 11, the whole world, there's one language, if you know the story. And yet some folks go to Babylon, and they said to one another, come let us, let us do this. Let us build, uh, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. A complete disregard of God's command to go out and disperse and fill the whole earth. No, I want to build a city. I want to be walled in. I want to be secure. Let us, let us, let us, over and over in Genesis 11. And from that day on, any culture that builds its government, it builds its nation, builds its prosperity around that kind of pride is going to be crushed. Any agenda to build a community based on pride, not the principle of glory, of the glory of God, will be, in the end, destroyed. In Genesis 11, you read about Babylon and this pride. And you know what? The Bible, from that point on, speaks of Babylon in many places, pointing to their pride, pointing to their pride. Although Israel lacked trust, They were not like Babylon. Listen to this speech. I'm not going to tell you who it is first. I'll tell you after we're done. This is, I'll give you a hint. It was a president of the United States. A president, not the president, but a president. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved, we, we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined 
in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to God that made us, end quote. Anybody want to guess? Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Abe. Babylon becomes this symbol of this godless nation. Of of building their nation on what they can achieve. It reminds me of Jesus' word in Matthew 7. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Trusting in God. His will for our lives. His word. Standing on the solid rock, which we just sang. But that takes humility, right? It takes that we don't know everything. And we need him. We love him. We're seeking him. We're following after him. We're trusting him. Day of the Lord, destruction, and now the decision of Israel. First couple of verses. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. For the Lord will... Have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And and peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And then the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female servants. They will take captive those who were their captives and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. Once again, Isaiah, in the midst of judgment and destruction, a word of hope. A word of hope. You notice the little word for in the beginning of chapter 14. The NIV, if you have an NIV, the word for is not there. I don't know why. It's in the Hebrew. But anyway, for. It's moving from this divine condemnation and judgment of Babylon, their sin and pride, to positively moving to God's promise towards his people. For for Babylon, in other words, saying destruction and, 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 and uh, of the oppressor will come because the Lord has compassion on his people. God will remember all of his people. Jacob and Israel indicates all of God's people. And the Exodus is clear in this passage. We see it. God once chose Israel while they were in Egypt, Egypt and he will choose them again. The result of Babylon's overthrow, overthrown of their pride and their arrogance will be the deliverance of God's people. That's what chapter 14, 1 through 3 says. Even though Israel, as I said earlier, didn't trust in the Lord, they didn't. And they went back into bondage, in exile. God chose Israel. He will not forsake her. They're the bearers of the covenant. And it's unchanging due to the promises and the covenant that God has made to Abraham and to David. And aren't you glad this morning that we could stand on the promises of God? That no matter what happens and no matter how hard-headed I can be, God will be faithful to himself and God will be faithful to his people. And when the word talks in this chapter, in this verse, it says they will be faithful to them again. It's not that God chose Israel then stopped choosing them. I think the language that Isaiah is using is, is but because of their discipline, due to their sin, now has been changed to his compassion. The same compassionate love that was reminiscent of the day that he called them to himself for the first time. 
We know that the real bondage and the real slavery is not to the human oppressors, but to sin. Because we're all, the Bible says, slaves to sin. Jesus sets us free. Jesus can wash away our sins. Isaiah will talk about that. He already has. And later on, he'll talk about the, the, the deliverance of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. So whatever punishment may come, abandonment for God's people will not come. God will choose them again. So it is with us this morning. If you've been born again of the Spirit of God and you belong to Jesus because you've trusted Him and you're resting upon His work on the cross, we can let this verse and promise of God sink into our souls. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the result, they'll be back in their own land. If you see that, in their own land. Verse 2. Now, we've talked about this before. Um, I believe it literally means their own land. The land where the Messianic King, the Lord Jesus, will come and establish a thousand-year reign on earth with justice and righteousness. And the Jews and the Gentiles will come to that mountain. That's my interpretation of the passage. My millennial brothers think it's the church age going on right now. That's cool. If you want to believe that, that's okay. But we know in that day the tables will turn and they will serve the Lord together. That's what verse 3 is talking about. The serving God together. Let's move on. The descent of the proud, verse 4. You will take up this taunt, Israel, God's people. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. This taunt... The word taunt means it's a proverb, a, a parable. Uh, and in the setting here, in this, it is, it is not a, a taunt of destruction, but satisfaction, a delight in the downfall of the oppressor, the king, the arrogant one, the one who has uh, ruled with oppression and hatred over his people. Commentators are, I mean, all over the place when it's just, when it is when they figure out try to figure out who this king they're talking about who's the actual king in verse 4 that they're talking about the king of babylon so i'm not going to get into that this is what i want to do as we look at this descent of the proud i want to say that this king the head of this nation whoever he is is a symbol of worldly power and worldly arrogance a, a, a power a nation a people that defies god and tramples on those who lust for power Sound familiar? <laughs> I won't go there. Four stanzas, you have it in your notes. Number one, the death of the tyrant king, 4b. How the oppressor has ceased. We read that. The, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath. With ceasing blows that rule the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. 
the taunt begins the death of this repressive, arrogant leader. The one who made this possible, notice, notice the text, the Lord, verse 5, has broken his staff. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. By the rod and the staff, the wicked rulers exercise their authority, their arrogance, their oppressive will, their power over people, and God says, no, you don't have that kind of power. And, and he puts an end to it. The one they hated, the one who hated others, God intervenes and breaks their power. And you know that th- this horrific leader, this, this arrogant, pompous one who, who has really oppressed and, 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 and taunted, excuse me, and has really hated people, you know it got really bad when, look what it says. It says the whole earth, <laughs> the whole earth is singing and bringing joy to the whole earth. Verse 7. Not only Israel, but the whole world with the death of this king is breathing again. People break forth in songs. Songs burst on the scene as God's power and his goodness removes this oppressive king. Even the trees, Isaiah loves trees. Picture them rejoicing, verse 8. Singing. They don't need to fear. Woodsmen will come and cut them down, use it for military or building their, their, their fortresses. Both man and nature, the whole world will shout and, and sing with jubilation. This terrible king has been laid low. Verse 8. Laid low. Laid low is a term that's used for a funeral. Number 2. The descent of the king into Sheol. Verse 9. Sheol beneath it is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. The earth is silent, but underneath the earth, where, where the Sheol, where departed spirits go, where, where they're waiting judgment under the reign of death, they're stirred up. They're, they're restless. They're, they're agitated regarding this king, this tyrant. What a picture. The spirits of the dead stirred up and excited to meet this famous king of Babylon who just died. They sit and on their thrones in honor of this great one in Sheol. He's no different than any other kings. And they say to him, you too? We meet you here? His glory and splendor have disappeared. Majesty and pride have dissolved. And now disgusting maggots, thousands of worms are decomposing his corpse. Even the dead know kings will not reign forever. No human king will. And again, verse 3, Isaiah brings the central point home. It's the haughtiness, the pride. That's been governing, and now this king is in Sheol. Number three, the downward fall of the king from heaven, verse 14. Excuse me, verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. To the far reaches of the pit. Where we read verse 15. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder. No, far reaches of the pit. Let's end in verse 15. Because what we see here, now if, you've, if you have a King James uh, version, a Bible, or if you're familiar with this passage, uh, the word uh, morning star or, or the um, O day star was translated from the, from the original Greek into Latin and the, I think it was Jerome, uh, used the word Lucifer, which means uh, uh, Venus they, was the morning star. And so a lot of commentators see this uh, as uh, the fall of Satan. You probably have heard this teaching before. From the sky. I mean, it does speak about. Uh, seems like this 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 text from Isaiah speaks more more about something beyond human understanding. This falling from the sky, mighty God, all this stuff. And some people see this as as uh, a poetic reference to the enemy. That that's possible. Uh, the king of Babylon has fallen from the heaven. His ambition was to ascend to the heavens above the stars of God, and like the Most High God. It's possible. He says over and over, I will. Five times he says it, flaunting a determination, a challenge to even usurp the authority of God. Yet the king is in Sheol. Death mocks every claim to be God. Tombs are filled with people claiming to be God. So whether it's the downfall of Satan or whether it's the king's downfall, I think both the point is the same. If you want to be like Satan, remain prideful. Centered on yourself. Play God. Save yourself. That's what Satan's trying to do. Yet, there is something to be said about the work of the enemy. He's called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4. The spirit that now works in the sons of obedience, Philippians 2.2. 2. So, you have this, this death, the descent the downward fall, and finally we'll see the disgrace. Verses 16 through 21 is, is quite a verse, quite, ver- quite interesting verses. Verse 16, chapter 14. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave. Like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword will go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. The final disgrace of this arrogant, prideful Babylonian king is a denial of a decent burial and the destruction of his descendants. As you read this passage, there's almost this sense of wonder as these people look at this, this dead king with almost uh, an awe of the terrible outcome, utter humiliation, utter, utter disgrace. He had power over other nations. They feared him. He was ruthless, turning cities desolate. Now he's in Sheol with no power at all. His burial is a disgrace. 
verses 18 through 20a seem to say that he has no burial. He's, he's not even going to be buried like the other kings. He has no place to call his home. There's no royal tomb. He's considered cast out or rejected, loathed, a loathed branch. You see that? What a contrast to the branch of the Lord who will reign and rule in righteousness, who is eternal, who will never die again, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 20, I think it's important. Not only did he destroy other people's places and land, it looks in verse 20, he destroyed his own land and his own people in the process. This is true for all the tyrants. The ones who, 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 who are tyrannical over other people actually mow their own people down. We see that all throughout history. And now the final destruction, he'll have no name, no family. Verse 21, prepare uh, slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the, uh, uh, the world with their cities. Everything is gone. His memory, his children, his family, all gone. Verse 21 through 22 is the epilogue of the taunt. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord. Declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off from Babylon, name, remnant, descendant, prosperity. Four nouns showing the totality of the destruction of Babylon, declares the Lord. That, that seals it. Verse 23, and I will make it a possession of hedgehog and pools of water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. Wiped out. Two short verses, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. There'll be stagnating marshy waters, animals only can live, man can't live, declares the Lord. What a destruction. As a leader goes, so goes the land. God will do it. And finally, the determination of the Lord. Verses 24 through 27. In the year, excuse me. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrians in my land and on my mountain trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is outstretched. This is the hand that is stretched out, excuse me, over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? And who will annul it? And his hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? Isaiah takes this turn really quickly, speaking of the destruction of Assyria, which is nothing new. We saw much of that in chapter 10. But I believe that Isaiah put it here for two reasons quickly. We'll look at them. The first one is Isaiah is trying to say that in which, you can tell by the verbs in chapter, uh, in verses, uh, the first two verses. What he's saying is God has said it clear and will fulfill his promise to Assyria. And therefore, what he says about Babylon will be done. Assyrians has gotten their judgment. God has declared it. It is as good as already done. And now that I'm done with talking the judgment of Babylon, it is just as sure. The second reason I think he brings it up, as as you see here, There seems to be a tremendous emphasis on the Lord's sovereign plans and his purposes. The purpose of the Lord, the plans of the Lord. It won't be void. It won't be frustrated. Look at the solemn oath at the beginning of that verse. The Lord has sworn. 
Look at the rhetorical question at the end. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? And God swears to something, let me tell you. It's going to happen. You can be assured that it happens. His plans, the things that he intends, the purposes, that which is determined that will be. The plans and the purposes of God we see in verses 25 and 26 is first for his own people. Verse 25. And then the whole world and all the nations. Verse 26. And destruction of Assyria will be simply the manifestation of what will take place to all the nations. We'll see that as we continue out through this book of Isaiah. God makes sovereign plans not only for Assyria, not only for Babylon, but for every nation on the earth. And therefore, as we conclude this section of Babylon and Assyria, it's a fitting conclusion of all the nations. Because that's what we're going to get into over the next several chapters. It's a fitting conclusion as we God introduces the final, well, not should say the final, but the judgment against other nations. So how do, how do we conclude with something of this magnitude this morning? Let me just give you two things. Number one, we definitely need to be very, very careful, and I, I find myself battling this all the time. We need to be very, very careful that we don't just take this passion and bring it immediately to today. We have to be careful. The rise and the fall of these nations in which Isaiah is prophesying is a word directly from the Lord to his prophet. That does not happen today. If someone says that, run. Okay? We don't have that clarity. But the spirit of Babylon, the idea of this pride and pompous arrogance is part of us. And will be part until Revelation tells us it will end when God puts down all opposition to his rule. So therefore, if there's one creator, God, who's the creator of the universe, who is intimately and purposefully purposefully involved with his creation, there is no reason not to trust and to rest that he will put everything down which is against him. No power on earth, least of all human pride, which can successfully rise against him. The justice and the judgment of God permeates these chapters, God's sovereign plan over the whole world. Rest in that truth. He's our God. He's our Father. Number two, and lastly, God is above all, and let me say it again, all evil thrones, governments, and nations, including Satan. Therefore, we as God's children by grace alone in Christ alone, we can look with triumph on the wicked oppressors who dominate the world that they will be torn down. And we could sing as God's people a taunt song of Isaiah 14 of the promises of God, of the future reign of God, when he will cast down all his enemies and God's people forever will be at rest and at peace and in security, singing the triumph of our God over all things. That's for us today. Do you know that I looked this up this week. There are a dozen hymns or songs, even short hymns and songs in the book of Revelation. 
They're all over the place. More than any other book in the New Testament. Revelation 19, a great multitude in heaven is seen celebrating and and, uh, the righteousness and the divine vengeance of God. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute Babylon who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The songs of Revelation not only contain the promises of God's salvation, but the promise of God's salvation for his servants, but the destruction of his enemies. The glory and majesty of God are its major theme. Its righteousness and truth and justice and judgments are constantly confirmed in the book of Revelation. That is why these songs sing, rejoice in the Lord. Hallelujah, the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Uh, we, we delivered. You see all this deliverance in the book of Revelation. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Paul says, then comes the end. When Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom, of, kingdom to God the Father after destroying, listen, every rule, every authority, and every power. So let me leave you with this this morning. There is no disease, there is no addiction, there is no demon, there is no bad habit, no weakness, no pride, no strife, no nothing, no greed, no perversion that Christ will not overcome. And the encouragement of that promise is that when we fight against the enemy who's against our faith, who's against our holiness, we don't fight alone. Christ is now in this age putting all his enemies under his feet. Every rule, every authority, and every power will be conquered. The final victory is Christ's. Do you know that? Do you worship him in his power and authority and sovereignty? Are you caught up so much into today, what's going on today with fear and, and, and anguish and angst? Or are you saying... You are sovereign. You rule the nations. You have delivered us from wrath. You have conquered and will conquer the world. That's our God. And when we talk to people and when we see people and they're, they're worried and they fear, are we telling them about Christ? Are we sharing them the good news that he's sovereign over the nations and he loves them and he cares for them and that one day judgment will come Oh, you want to talk about judgment? Yes. But God loves you and sent his only son as that wrath-absorbing sacrifice, as your substitute to die in your place. That's the God we worship. Let us pray. Father, it is so good to gather. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth Thank you for Isaiah to reveal to us your word. Thank you that we can rest in your sovereignty. Even though our nation is not in that prophecy, Lord, we trust and recognize and acknowledge your sovereign hand over all nations. And Father, we thank you that you are holy and you are just and you are good. And you are loving and merciful. So much so that you sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, paying its penalty, bearing its wrath and judgment 
What we deserve was on him. And now all who call upon you will be saved. So, Father, we want to worship you this morning. We want to just release any, any, any fears. We want to release any control that we think we have and trust you this morning. Rely upon you and worship Jesus, our great God and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.